I, th I think about this a lot because there's stuff that you need to believe as a company that needs to be like a religious level belief about where you're going, right? It's like, we haven't seen this thing work yet, but like, it's going to work. Like, I promise you, like this thing is going to happen. This great thing is going to happen. And those religious beliefs are actually like really helpful for rallying everyone getting in the same direction. It's like, if, and if that was one of them for them, just a guess, is like, it's never going to get there. We're going to be the tool. It's going to be so fast, so easy to get everything. Everyone's like doing all these details that made Envision great, which is like why it took off in the first place, right? And then it's very hard to question those religious beliefs. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. My name is Brian Belfour, I'm founder and CEO of Reforge and the host of the podcast. Today I'm joined by my co-host Fareed Masavat and today's guest, Chris Savage. He is the founder and CEO of Wistia. I am sure you have come across their product as they are one of the largest video hosting platforms out there on the web. Reforge is a very happy customer along the way. And, and Chris and I have known each other for a number of years from the Boston community. Today, we go through a few different topics. One, Envision's failure to pivot and go deeper in the value chain. We pull up a bunch of interesting data about just the rise of Figma and how that ate away at Envision, what they might have been able to do differently. And then second, we tackle the new AI pin Humane. Super interesting product. A little bit lackluster of a marketing video. Chris is absolutely savage in his breakdown of that marketing video. We also sprinkle in a little bit of banter and reaction to the debacle at OpenAI. And Chris actually demos a new product he's been trying out internally at their company that has had some pretty amazing results at reducing the time of meetings and increasing those water cooler moments in a remote environment. Some of the companies have been struggling with ever since the COVID pandemic. Anyways, let's jump in. We hope you enjoy the episode. I'm interested, do you find all this tech drama fascinating? It's like the drama of like the venture scene and all that kind of stuff. And Wistia is just fortunately not part of that scene for many good reasons. Yeah. Or are you just like, I don't, I don't give a crap. Oh, no, we're definitely wrapped up into it. There's a few different group chats going off the whole weekend, basically. Just, I mean, to me, this, this past weekend felt like the SVB collapse in the sense of like completely glued in and then everyone trying to understand the implications of it. And... I mean, I do think it's weird because we don't, there's so much we don't know still. What was the thing that caused the board to say, we need to get well, rid of Well, every hypothesis Sam. keeps getting like crossed off the list. The latest one is that there, it wasn't about safety or anything. So I'm just like, okay. Yeah. okay. <laughs> what yeah, what and the like, hell is it, it? Yeah. And I think if you've ever had hard people issues, like there's things that are on, it, it's, there's a lot of stuff no one can talk about. So that's the other thing about this. We just have yeah. no idea. Like, I think we may not get the full answers. So I think that's interesting. I think the reaction shows you how much people are rooting for something like this to happen right now. And I don't just mean even AI, but like having one collective company that we're all following and excited about. It's kind of showing us what's possible. And so that coming into question is like, everyone's like, this is such a no-brainer. Why would you ever do this? Like, you're destroying the most valuable company of our time, which is interesting to hear people say out loud and also like in the middle of the night. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think people have wrestled with the implications yet. So I think like with SVB, the secondary implications on like the entire startup ecosystem were immediately... Well, were clear from the, when, from the fact that it could have an impact right away. And I yes. think in this case, the surrounding impact, the blast radius, it takes a little bit longer to play out. 
there are instant implications, I think. We are an OpenAI customer. Yeah. And we have some like AI features in the product that people really seem to love. And the you know first thing this morning, the engineering team's like, well, what if everyone leaves? We're we should expect more downtime. So what's going to happen? And so there's yeah. already contingencies being put into place. And even like the announcement Sam made like two weeks ago, right, of the pricing changes and cutting price more. It was just like, oh wow, well this means now we can use it in these other ways. And so it was like, product roadmaps are changing and stuff. So I think that's the thing that's like very much on my mind is how much will this change? Every company that's just purely built on open AI is going to feel this like existential threat now. Will it slow us down as a community or what's going to happen? I, I don't know. Hmm. I think that's the most interesting aspect of all of this to me is we talked about this a bunch on the pod last week with Jem Kansu from Duolingo, where we talked about like how one of the things they really made like a secondary message of Dev Day was that you can expect us to get better, cheaper and yeah. faster yep. at a really fast clip and that you can build on us as a developer because you can trust that we're going to do the AWS thing. We're going to do the like Moore's law thing. We are going to push on that. And, you know, today, Emmett Shear, who as of right now at the time of this recording is the interim CEO of OpenAI. <laughs> who knows how long that will last and if it will make it By the time uh, to the time of this publishing. Could be the CEO of OpenAI. You never know. That yeah. Never, yeah, yeah. I think uh, it's possible at this point. So, so you know, has a tweet where he was responding to some people talking about AI pause versus stop. And I'm not an expert on the safety argument at all, but he basically said, if we're going at a 10 now, I think we should be going at more of a two. And I think if you're a customer of open AI, that's a horrifying thing to hear. Like ignore the safety thing for a quick second. You're a customer trying to build a product, Chris. Are you going to bet on a partner whose stated goal is to go 20% as fast? as anybody else in the market? Absolutely not. The bigger thing that I'm thinking about is the whole debacle plays into every single negative narrative that the media and the government is liking to tell about tech as a whole. That there's irresponsible people at the helm that can't think through like complicated decisions, big tech getting bigger, right? So if anything, this probably just like amplifies the negative sentiment that's been growing around the tech industry for the past like three or four years more broadly. And the worst part of this probably invites more uninformed regulation around this technology, you know, from the government that was already kind of happening and in, in play. I think the other piece that's just like interesting here, this is sort of a more meta point. People are super invested in this. It's yeah. not just that it's high drama and succession in real life and all this crazy stuff, which is all very cool <laughs> and fun to watch in, in a like, you know, watching a train wreck kind of way. But yeah. like so much of what we do is dependent on like some of these outcomes. It's not inconsequential drama. It like actually matters, right? Because what percentage of VC dollars right now are going into things building on top of open AI and related competitors? Like a ton. The only thing saving tech from like the interest rate changes and SVB and a huge deceleration in valuations, et cetera, is AI. It's like the only thing kind of holding the thing together. And if you really look at it below it, it's open AI releasing GPT-4 and related models and like being really committed to commercializing them and allowing other people to build. So if that comes apart, lots of bad stuff happens. And last piece, Twitter is still Twitter, no matter what 
you know, happens with it from a corporate drama perspective. Like it is the place that all of this goes down. I think it is really interesting that this story is electric. Everything you see is this, but <laughs> it is a tech story versus like, there's a lot of stories in the world that people don't even know how to comment on like Ukraine war or all these things. It's just like, how much should we be commenting on it? But this one, because it's tech people talking about tech, it seems like yeah. we're allowed to get in there. And so how much of it is also just like product market fit with like the, the audience is like perfect. If you could go back to this day, what is it, November 20th, 19th, 18th, and you would go back and look at people's Twitter feeds, you cannot miss it. It is most of the feed. And even my friends and family who are outside of tech are like, what's this open AI thing? Like, yeah. oh, I know the details of what happened to Sam Altman. And it's like, you know his name? Like, this is crazy. Yeah. A slightly adjacent topic here, because I'm just interested in how you all have been thinking about Wistia, AI, video, the intersection of those things. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff we've done. For a long time, you've been able to get transcription through Wistia yeah. of your video. And we offered human-led transcription, which is like 100% accurate. And then we offered automatic transcription, which was maybe like 94% accurate, which is actually not very good. But like, if you look at it, it's better than not having it. You'd have to go in there and edit the transcript. Yeah. One of the first things we saw is that the those models have gotten so good and so cheap in the last year. We were able to go from having to be a paid add-on to including it for all videos. So like every video is automatically transcribed. It's extremely accurate. Once we did that, we started looking at things of like, okay, we have AI chaptering now. So you go through you add chapters to a video automatically. Yeah. Why does that matter? Especially long form videos, chapters drive more engagement because someone knows what they're signing up for, but they're extremely annoying to add. So like, if you like, <laughs> if you have like a four aware five minute long, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's just, it's so annoying to get them right and put them in all the right spots. And like the first time I used that feature, I had this feeling of joy of just li literally getting time back. I'm like, I just got 20 minutes back. And we're doing another thing that's like automatically finding highlights of your video. So you can edit them. So you can say like, take a long form thing, which of these clips would be best. And you could drop them into our editor. And then we added text-based editing. So the transcription got so good, aligned it to, you know, frame by frame, where are you in the video? So now you can edit the text to edit mm -hmm. the video. And we have a lot of other stuff coming. And, and the way the way I look at it is the closest thing to using AI to give you something that's customer facing is the transcript. But a lot of the things we're doing, we're just trying to give you the draft that is going to explicitly save you time. Friction reduction equals more videos created, meaning more videos that need to be hosted. So ultimately it benefits the whole thing. And we've had a bunch of hackathons where they people did really wild stuff. And it seems cool, but the problem is is it actually solving the customer's problem? Right. Like novelty effect. And so we're, yeah. we've gone the other route of like, let's go and like find the most practical things we can do and just keep using it as a tool. Like we have no AI team at Wistia. We expect everyone to use it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So on that note, Chris, I'm curious, what percentage of the stuff you see in your roadmap that's AI adjacent or AI related is stuff that you already thought we needed to build, but was too hard to build? Versus things you couldn't have even imagined until the tool existed. There's a bunch of things we wanted to do for a long time that you needed a human being to look at something and tell you what it is to really understand it. And so instead, a machine can give you a pretty good estimation of what that thing is. And we had thought we could get maybe get to these things eventually, and they've become easy in many places with much smaller teams than you would have thought. 
right. before. That's probably the biggest difference. Like, so that's the other, yeah, like example. how has it changed you internally? Yeah. Like even our transcription work internally that I was talking right. about was yeah. like extremely small team that did that. Yeah. And I think before for us to have imagined that at the cost that it's at, it would have been almost like impossible. We're kind of doing the same mm -hmm. thing at Reforge, but I'm interested, have you taken two or three people, like you said, and quarantined them off and be like, go build crazy shit for me or, or anything else? Our solution to that has been hackathons. Yeah. So we've done hackathons around AI. We've done a few of them. And I don't think we launched anything directly, at, you know, like hackathon at a Thursday, we launched on Friday. But it, well, basically what it did is there was a lot of things that people thought might take months and they happened in days. Mm. And that always happens at hackathons, but, the, <laughs> but the, that's just normal, I think. Yeah, yeah. But like a lot of the AI stuff that happened, people couldn't really believe that it was done in mm. two days. But really, it has become an expectation of everybody, which is yeah. like, hey, you just need to be looking. And if you're, and it all comes back to the customer problem. Like if your customer problem is help a customer find their videos, the right video as fast as possible, because that is a problem that people have. If they, you go in there, that's the problem you're solving. You should use the best tools available. And if there's a way better tool that just showed up, use it. Yeah. We're obviously finalizing our 2024 plans and, and a question kind of came up internally. Uh, somebody had misinterpreted one of the things as like AI is the strategy. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like AI is not a strategy. It's a technology. AI is the boss. AI is yeah. the, <laughs> it's the boss. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, and the technology does one of two things. It either enables new solutions to existing customer problems that we have or that you have, or it enables us to solve new customer problems that we couldn't solve before. And those are the two things that we've got to be focused on and the strategy has to be focused on. And that's why every single team has to play around with it is like, if your job is to come up with the best solution to our customer problems, then you've got to be taking, you, you've got to be operating with this technology because it probably does enable a new approach to something that we've been thinking about for quite some time. At minimum, I think there was something embedded in what you said, Chris, which is that speed to prototype has probably like 20 X and the quality of prototypes has like 10 X because of it or some ratio like that. And so like if you can get a fully working prototype up in the amount of time it would take you to write a bunch of Jira tickets to like define an Epic and do a spike, then that's probably what you should be doing. Well, this is a perfect leeway into our first topic around a prototyping tool that actually is pretty much a shell of itself. But our first topic is InVision. And so for those listening that don't know what InVision was, InVision was founded a little over 10 years ago, I think actually in 2011. And so this was like pre-Figma days, right? This was like Photoshop sketch days. And the original product was a basically a collaboration and prototyping layer that sat on top of the desktop tools like Photoshop and Sketch. And so you would upload your Sketch designs or your Photoshop designs, and then you could add clickable areas as well as commenting on top of the visuals, um, these things that the designer native tools didn't really have. And they experienced some really, really fast growth. Eventually, you know, their last round that they raised was a $115 million round at a $2 billion valuation in 2018. Around that time, it was reported that they had about 5 million users. They had raised a total in $350 million in funding. 
But around that time, a little tool called Figma started to take shape and started to grow. And so I actually found this graph. You can see this. This was from a survey from UX tools back in 2020, where you can start to see Figma, this dark blue line, actually right around that timing of their la Envision's last round of funding really start to inflect, right? Uh, really, you know, really start to Brutal. start to compound. And you play that out. To I've today. never seen the data on this, but the anecdote of this was felt real at the time. But going back to that graph, like I've never seen it actually graphed out as Figma swallowing it up, but it like, yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it was an offhand guy. Yeah. Yeah, you play it out today. This was the most recent survey, 2022, around which software do you use for UI prototyping? And you can you can just see the massive difference. Envision's down here in fifth place or so, something like that. But obviously, the, <laughs> the bar for Figma is more than 10x larger. So that whole thing happened incredibly quickly along the way. And so flash forward to today, Envision is unfortunately a shell of itself. Uh, in 2021, they did 100 million in revenue. 2022, that was cut by 50%, around 50 million. And they're projecting around 35 million for this year based on a recent article from the information. And they tried to stave this off, right? They had a window of a year or two period where they actually built and launched something called Envision Design Studio that was intended to compete with Figma. I do not think it exists today. They must have shut it down. And, you know, a lot of the old commentary around it was just like, it was just the features just uh, like weren't there, which makes sense because Figma, they built for something like four or five years before even really launching that thing publicly. So that's a hard, hard, even if you have additional resources, that's a hard thing to make up for in, in a year or two time period. And then they then went in, you know, I believe during COVID time, launched a something in the whiteboard tool space to try to compete with Miro. And then eventually FigJam, they just recently sold that off to Miro uh, for reportedly between 30 million and 100 million. I mean, never got past the 10 million ARR mark. And so I, I think there's a couple interesting questions here. I think the main one that is around just vectors of disruption. This seems like one of those where another company just decided to go one layer deeper in the stack in terms of the customer problem or the tools that the customers were using. And as a result, even though that problem was much harder to solve and much longer to build, end up gaining an advantage. And so Farid, I'll start off with you. I'm just, I'm interested in the advantages that you think of by going deeper into that stack that ultimately yeah. led to this massive switching in the market in just such a short period of time. So when we started using Envision and Instacart, it was actually a game changer for the reasons we just talked about, which is that when you can do a prototype for cheap, you can learn a ton. Like you can put it in front of customers, they can click on things, they can interact. And that was actually pretty hard to do before clickable prototypes that were hosted on a web page that you could do. So we could like recruit people off the internet, either users or non-users and have them use products that we spent hours building instead of months building and get real feedback. It allowed us to take bigger swings on the growth team. It was a game changer. It was really important. I think ultimately the reason Figma wins is because network effects override everything. There are no network effects in Envision. Like you use a different tool to build it. It's it's a great solution to a prototyping problem and maybe some data around it and how people are using it, but there's no network effects. I wasn't in Envision commenting, talking about things. It's not how we reviewed design. 
We did a little bit, but it's like everybody chose a wedge and Figma's wedge was the hard wedge. That was the bigger wedge. So like for me, it's really about the network effects of the collaboration, just like subsuming everything. Can you describe the network effect though? Because I feel like on the surface, you could look at what Envision's, Envision did have the collaboration components where you could comment and invite other people into the equation. So what was the difference around the network effect between Figma and Envision? Personally, I think it's what you were talking about around it being around the deeper, harder thing, which is the interaction of building and designing. So it's not just prototyping and user feedback, right? I feel like mostly I still looked at Envisions over screen shares or in conference rooms, not in the way that Figma is like everybody's collaborating, talking and interacting in there. That's my personal view of it. But to me, it's like, it's a leaf of the design problem versus the core of the design problem which is build the design. These Envision files were still one-offs. They didn't live forever the way like Figma docs do, where they are like the working document of building, right? They're sort of like, okay, I built one, take a look at it. There's some collaboration, but it's gone as soon as, you know, and then it's the next one. So it doesn't really live on in a core way. Didn't have accruing, Sorry. accruing switching costs. Yeah. That's didn't have accruing switching no, the, costs. I think that, no, I appreciate you saying that because... Because I think I've seen that too. And I, I was wondering too, like one of the things with Figma that seems interesting to me is that there really is like much more broad usage of it. Like it's it's not just the design team. And I feel like there was no need to really have an Envision login. There feels like a need to have a Figma one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do wonder if that was ultimately a pricing thing on Envision's part. I can't. I, I don't remember what Envision's pricing was, but obviously one of the things that enabled that for Figma was they only charged for editors. They didn't charge for collaborators, which reduced the friction, allowed collaborators to come in. I wonder if Envision's pricing early on was actually based on just like a general per user basis, which would have hindered that part of the collaboration network effect um, along the way. So I'd have to go back and look. I mean, it's also, you said Envision was started in 2010, right? 2011, yeah. I think I have to imagine too, that there must have been, you know, some limiting beliefs on like what was going to be possible in the browser that time. Mm -hmm. So it was like, we're going to make the best solution we can because yep. you're never going to be able to take you know, Photoshop, you're never going to be able to bring mm. the full power of Illustrator to the browser, right? And then it's like, they're in that moment, they're right. And they're right for like that's eight years point. until they're wrong. Yeah, that's a, that's actually a really interesting point. And it kind of gets to the second theme of this, which is Clark, the former, the founder and the former CEO, I don't believe he's there any longer, was quoted in, a, in that information article, just talking about the challenges of a quote unquote, like late stage pivot. Even though I don't, I don't view this as a pivot, it viewed viewed this more as like needing to layer on either a second product or just deepening your existing product. And there's a lot of difficulties around that once you get to a certain size and scale of a company. But to your point, you know, you start these companies with these deeply ingrained hypotheses and, and beliefs that are just so hard to, <laughs> to like get rid of even, yeah. you know, seven years of history at that point by 2018 and Figma's hitting an inflection point. And they'll probably still look at that Figma at that time and being like, ah, now like, like, you know, designers are never going to switch to this in, in mass and stuff. So uh, that's just yeah. like an interesting thought that I hadn't had. Yeah. If, if you think about it, it's like Figma is built on a seek, like a core secret. I think this is like a tealism or something, but like the core secret they had that nobody else believed is the thing Chris talks about, which is you can build a fully functional design tool in the browser. All the other stuff was layered on top of that, 
But once you've unlocked that secret and it takes years to build and a lot of talent, and then you also add the secret, which is other people want to be in the design tool. They just can't right now because of thing A isn't real yet. That A plus B is just like an unstoppable juggernaut. And it took a while. Like, it, you know, we talked about this in yeah. previous episodes. They were probably laughing Figma was a, a shitty while. design tool for a while. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, th I think about this a lot because there's stuff that you need to believe as a company that needs to be like a religious level belief about where you're going, right? It's like, we haven't seen this thing work yet, but like, it's going to work. Like, I promise you, like, this thing is going to happen. This great thing is going to happen. And those religious beliefs are actually like really helpful for rallying everyone getting in the same direction. It's like, if, and if that was one of them for them, just to guess, is like, it's never going to get there. We're going to be the tool. It's going to be so fast, so easy to get everything. Everyone's like, doing all these details that made Envision great, which is like why it took off in the first place, right? And then it's very hard to question those religious beliefs, let's say. Yeah. When was once they're in effect? When was Wistia founded? When did you all? 2006. 2006. Yeah. I'm interested. Do you, oh, any religious oh, beliefs? I, I speak yeah. as someone who's had many beliefs and had to evolve them. So. <laughs> <laughs> Your religion has been questioned. But like, I'll give, you, I'll give you a really concrete one I've said before. In the early days of Wistia, there was... Me and Brett in two years, we hired two people, an engineer, sales guy, one salesperson. We get from like 10 customers to maybe 500 with one salesperson. Wow. And we're basically realizing the whole secret of the business is to make it self-service. So then we're like, we're not going to do any sales at all. Zero sales. Mm. Like, And the person who's doing sales did something else. Because we were so, it'd be such a strong religious belief that we don't have sales. We don't believe in it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any sense. And we got to 10 million in revenue, 3 million in profit, no salespeople growing. At that point, we were growing like 80% or something. And I thought, look at me. I figured, <laughs> I figured out the path forward, you know? And then it was I'm like- I'm the exception. I'm the exception, <laughs> yes. And then it was probably like a year later, two years later, our, we were not growing 80%, we are growing like 50%. And- I hear from a potential customer. They're like, man, you guys suck. And I was like, what are you talking about? Like we had such a high NPS, like all these things. They're like, I'm trying to buy from you. I'm going to be bigger than your biggest plan. No one will talk to me. There's no phone number. There's nothing. And I started looking. I was like, oh my God, there's a lot of people who are basically having a horrible customer experience. And we're, just, we're so stupid because we had no one talking to potential customers. And it was this realization of like, I actually needed that religious approach to get us to build all the things that would let us scale in like a self-service way. Like we never would have gone as hard if we hadn't like burned the boats, you know? And that's what we did. And then we had to reassess ourselves and ultimately have a sales team and they're great. They're fantastic. They make a better customer experience. <laughs> we grow faster because of them. But it was like, it was that moment. I remember when we said, we're going to start hiring sales. The team almost rejected it for a oh, second. Yeah. They're like, well, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah. I thought this is the opposite of what we do. You told so, me that I should believe in this religion and now exactly. you've changed and the I, rules. I think yeah. about that a lot. Sometimes we don't even know what the religious belief is that we're creating. We're just creating it because it. we feel like it's what you need in that moment. And I imagine this is like part of what happened with them there. And it just, they, they couldn't, what they couldn't foresee is how quickly to your point, free that like you could not only build in the browser it'd be amazing in the browser and suddenly oh god now it's gonna change everything yeah yeah and a couple things that i think are true about them that are like foundational beliefs that actually it's kind of a bummer that this is the outcome that they're at yes one is that they're like an early self-service 
like PLG SaaS type thing. Mm -hmm. They added they added sales, et cetera, but like an early, like you could buy the tool yourself. And because it was a wedge point solution for designers at a relatively low cost, it was like, it's an easy play and it's at an important point. So I, I don't think it was that low cost. I don't remember exactly, but I remember it being like a, an easy sell. The second is they're one of the first fully remote companies of scale. And I remember like talking to somebody, I met someone at an event once that was at Envision and they were like, oh no, we're fully remote. And this was like, when that was like crazy, yeah, you'd never heard of it. Like, <laughs> and certainly not, I would remember him telling me how many employees they had and it was in the hundreds. And I was like, what? And they're all wherever they want to be at home. Like, wow. And I don't know if anybody's picked on this and and maybe because of, of you know, the shift to remote through COVID, et cetera, the narrative isn't quite there, but I bet. There's a version of a story somewhere that's like fully remote company, <laughs> total failure, you know, blah, 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 which I think is also unfortunate because I think like I like seeing these experiments and like new ways, you know, different religions around how to build companies. And those are two of the ones that they had early on. And, and, and for maybe reasons that have nothing to do with those two things have unfortunately just been bested by a juggernaut competitor that came out of nowhere and honestly is doing this to lots of other businesses. But yeah, I think that's an interesting sub story of this is that they were both PLG and remote when it wasn't popular to be either. Yeah. I just, I just looked this up too, to free to your earlier point about if you solve and own the problem, like deeper in the stack, you can kind of just suck in all the things around it over time, which is Envision launched their whiteboarding tool freehand back in 2017. So this unfortunately happened to them twice, right? First, they ate their prototyping tool, and then FigJam didn't launch until 2021. And so both of those products, and, and you might look at that timing too and wonder, well, like, were those resources diverted in the wrong direction, right? Like, should they have been diverted into the design studio? It just creates a really complicated thing. You launch this adjacent yeah. product, then you realize you have to like solve the problem deeper in the stack. And and all of a sudden you're, you're spread across three bets as, as like a medium-sized company. That's like a challenging spot to be in for sure. So they bought freehand the pieces of Envision got bought by Miro. What's the fate of Miro here if we draw this same like question mark out further? Like, does Miro have advantages that make it more resilient to Fig Jam, Figma, et cetera? Or are they like sort of like, I don't know, I don't mean the armchair strategist, but that's literally what this podcast is about. So we're gonna. <laughs> I have a hard time seeing how Miro is not the next Figma casualty, but I might just be wrong because I haven't used the product as deeply and don't understand like where it sits in the stack quite as well. They do have network effects. They do have collaboration, but like, so they have some pieces, but like, I don't know, Brian, you've used both, I think a lot. So how do you feel about it? It's a good question. I, my perception from the outside is that even with FigJam and even though Figma does draw in surrounding folks, it's the the core of the nexus. It's starting energy is still really oriented around designers and software companies as a as like a target market, right? So we used to use Miro, for example, but Miro was initially adopted by our non-design function, people that were more on the business side and the operations side of things. And then eventually we decided once Figma launched FigJam, we were like, ah, oh, let's consolidate. And the real pull around that was that there was no other tool we were, our design team was gonna was going to switch to. So we consolidated the whole company around FigJam. But I do imagine that 
it does seem that Miro has caught the non-design customer segment around whiteboarding much better than Fig Jam has. And so I do wonder, there feels like a whole uh, target market and customer segment outside of Silicon Valley and outside of tech companies that don't necessarily have as strong of a draw around like their design team that probably makes Miro a little bit more resilient versus InVision had the same kind of customer nexus as Figma. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that was that's like the biggest difference I see among those two. Now, does Miro live up to their peak times valuation? I think that's a, that's a separate question because I think it was like 18 billion or something like that. But I do think they've captured a slightly different target market than Figma or FigJam has. The difference in who the end user is seems real to me with Miro versus Figma. I say that we use both and I see, you know, that Miro is used in a lot of non-design meetings and is used when people are fully remote. It's also when we've had fully in-person meetings again, people will still want to use Miro instead of whiteboarding. Basically, we used to use post-it notes and put them everywhere and it takes so much work to categorize. It's like, why not just do it here? That's where I'm going to put it anyway. And so that's been surprising to me. Like we've had offsites at the senior team and we all use Miro. <laughs> to do the whiteboarding, even though we're sitting by a whiteboard. So that seems, I, I, I think it was going to survive. I think the other thing is their pace of shipping, Miro has actually continued. And I don't know their business well enough, but it seems like pretty concentrated in terms of what they're doing. They're really trying to own that one piece of the puzzle. And that seems pretty different than what happened to Envision. But these consolidation plays matter. And even the the tool I'm going to show you guys later has some elements of it that is like yeah. trying to compete with Miro as well. So I do think you bring up an interesting point, which is probably Miro's biggest risk is that there are other tools that are at a earlier point in the life cycle of the user. But to your point about the velocity of shipping is that the, the, the chasm between them right now is still extremely large, that even if there are tools like Zoom and Slack that are at a better entry point in the user life cycle, there's a lot of building to do to come up on them. I mean, in previous episodes, the other question that comes to mind is Figma seems like it has a lot of adjacencies that it can expand into around the software development life cycle. You know, we talked about this with Figma developer and, you know, they're pulling in more adjacencies and it's giving them more monetization opportunities. I think with Miro, I'm like, I'm trying to think of like what it adjacencies they go yeah. into over time to continue to grow. So that, I don't know, that's the other question. I think this is another piece just quickly to jump back to Envision. I think Envision's other problem is their entry point didn't have one plus one equals three types of product market fit expansion. If you're building a prototyping tool, that's awesome. But then like the next thing is just kind of, it's like a design tool. So it's sort of like, you're not because I use the prototyping tool, the design tool is better, et cetera. Whereas Figma, it's like, all around this core. And then the core is like, well, I'm building. So now I do dev. And now I'm going to do brainstorming because that's an input to design. I'm going to do design systems and I'm going to do plugins. And like, it all sort of like fits into the juggernaut of the center, the way Outlook or Gmail is like the center of the G Suite ecosystem or whatever. So Miro has that around this non-design. So like, if you think, okay, Figma owns that for all of the product development life cycle, there's a whole bunch of other types of life cycle that you can own. So like, what are the things adjacent I suspect it's like project management would be like the next direction, maybe like generalized docs and collaboration. I don't know where it goes. It's like, if you think of the primary product as the sun, what are the planets that orbit around it is a better, 
product market fit expansion strategy than trying to like make another planet, you know, that's on its own orbit somewhere else, which I think is some of the trouble of that envision had. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, if I was Mira, I'd lean hard in the non-software company world. Once again, like Figma's kind of continues to grow at a compounding rate and and will move into those adjacencies. So that's an interesting point. I hadn't thought about like the docs and yeah. the collaboration, which everybody seems to have expanded into <laughs> like at, at this yeah. point, right? Like Zoom just launched their their docs competitor and you got Microsoft copying yeah. Notion and oh man, that that is a red ocean for sure. So and- and they're, they're crappy entry points because the table stakes is so high. Like think about how much product you have to build to like even get started there. So yeah. Well, to Chris's earlier point, the amazing things you can do with teams of two or three folks at this point. So who, who knows? Anyways, why don't we transition to the next topic? We want to talk a little bit about Humane and Everpresence AI, wearing AI with you at 100% of the time. Farid, do you want to cue us up? Yeah. So I wanted to tee this up actually, because I want to have kind of two discussions. One is around the product of Humane. So Humane, widely like hyped AI uh, pin company that's sort of been like quietly in the shadows. People have known it's been building well-known founders, et cetera, for a while, finally released a launch video kind of showing through their product, their price point, et cetera. And I actually wanted to have this conversation today. One, because I'm like curious if any of you are interested and excited about this product, but two, Chris, you're like, one of probably the world's most renowned experts on marketing videos is this is like in a lot of ways what y'all do at your business. And I was curious, there was a lot of chatter around the video itself. And I was wondering if we could like have a conversation about whether we thought this was a good way to launch a on its face, like revolutionary, interesting product. Like I am personally like fascinated by it. I think it's a better future than wearing a computer on my face. If like, we're going to have some AI assistant in our lives at all times, like personally, I I like that better. Yeah. But I was sort of underwhelmed by the video and I'm curious like to talk about that a little bit too. So I wanted to start there, give it a grade. Like, what did you think? (laughs) The video, not the product. (laughs) The video was like a C or an F. The video is bad and it's, uh, there's a lot of reasons why I'm talking about the 10 minute video that they launched that shows off like this actual product working. There's been other videos that came out, clips from them doing talks and stuff. But the first thing I'll say is like, if you watch this video, you don't know why you're watching it. And then they're talking about like (laughs) colorways of the pin and they're talking about the box that comes in. They don't tell you anything about why you Qualcomm processor. I I (laughs) watch all this stuff and it's like, I watched the whole video, but I was like, the reason I watched the whole video is like, what the fuck is going on right now? I was like, this is, (laughs) it didn't, it was like, this is, it was basically that video to me was just like a huge signal of ego. It's like, we are making the most important thing in the world. And we are making this thing that is more important than the smartphone. That's what they're saying. The smartphone is like the the most powerful computer we've ever had. It's changed our lives in a lot of incredible ways. We can communicate with people at any moment. I can call you video chat. Like I can scan tech. All, there's a million things you can do with the smartphone. And they're saying their thing is better. So this is a big grandiose claim. And in my opinion, the video is made by people who believe that they are that much that good and that different so they don't tell you why they don't tell you anything it's just like you're gonna need this and so do you want steel or do you want glow or maybe they're all eclipses right or it's like yeah. do you want solar eclipse yeah or do you yeah. want like whatever like solar flare so- they're like going through this stuff and i i felt like it was just like hey you might even be on i'll, I'll give them let's give them the credit and say it's there nobody knows about this thing 
you like one New York Times article. Do you know how hard it is to get people to pay attention to anything and care? Maybe in our little tech bubble, we know about the average person does not know what this thing is. They didn't watch your TED talk. They're not going to watch it. They don't know. So you have to hook us and you have to tell us why upfront this matters. You have to give us some reason to pay attention yeah. and some benefits, some Tell me what I just told you. Tell me that you're never going to have to use a smartphone again. And of course, the, the, you know, the takedown, it's not even a takedown article. The t I think it was a New York Times article about this. Final line, we asked them, you're going to replace a smartphone. Are you still using your iPhone? Yes. Is it any different? Marginally. Like, it's like, that's what I think is like, it, it's a reality of the situation, which is also a challenge. Like, how do you market the thing that's brand new? But, totally. I, but I think it's like, it's always about the why. And it's the and market to me the long term implications, paint the vision of the world that I want to be in. Can you imagine a world where you don't have to carry your phone with you? Can you imagine a world where the battery never runs out? All this stuff like, can you imagine a world where you have the power of like the world's collective intelligence at any moment and you don't have to have a screen? That sounds sick, but that wasn't what they did. So I think that's like why I was just it was really disappointed. And then last thing I because if it were to get clipped or something, I want to say. I'll probably buy it <laughs> to be clear. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Same here. And, yeah. Same and here. I want it to deliver. So I just want to be really clear on that. But I, but I just think that it is, it was just, it really disappointed me. Yeah. So who do you think it's for then? Cause like, I think that's exactly it is like, this is like the feedback I give product managers all the time is like, Hey, you started at the beginning of the narrative. Like once upon a time, there was a thing and we built the thing and we put this chip in it and then we did this and it comes in these colors instead of starting with like, you know, classic like consultant style of uh, delivering message. What's the situation? What's the complication? What's the question? What is the answer? So the situation is we are addicted to our phones or like yeah. the situation is the phone does a lot of stuff. The complication mm -hmm. is we are addicted to them. How do we solve this? by bringing the world's collective intelligence into a much lighter form factor that doesn't command our attention all the time, but only when we need it. That is an awesome message, right? And then like some of the demo stuff, which by the way, is like at minute eight and beyond. Yeah, there's yeah. a couple of yeah. use cases in there. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the the language one where where it just talking yeah. and auto translated and vice versa. Like that was the one thing that stuck out in my mind. I was like, why is that at minute eight and not second, you know, 10 seconds into yeah. the thing? Yeah, yeah. So. But, it, but it's still like it talking, reading your text out loud. Do you want that? No. Do you, do you want it to read your text out loud when you're like on a subway? <laughs> or a, a plane uh, like to an airpod maybe like maybe exactly so then like you need something zero. i just think it's like right. if you're trying to build a car you don't just build a car the first thing you do is you build a skateboard and then you turn it and the skateboard's useful by itself then you build the scooter and then you take the bike and then you yeah. electric you know it's, it's like there's what's what's the first killer use case they probably don't know yeah and they're trying a lot of different stuff again it's very interesting i also i find it interesting how similar the like approval clicking do you've seen this like it projects on your hand you click mm -hmm. it to select something mm -hmm. that's the same interface of the vision pro mm -hmm. oh, interesting. those ui mechanisms are already converging even though these products aren't even out yet so yeah yeah which is kind of interesting by itself yeah go ahead but go ahead i'm, I'm getting too fired up i need to give more <laughs> space to talk. No, no this is good okay. i want to hear chris fired up yeah so to me yeah like do i want it talking to me probably not i probably want it in an earpod do i want siri that actually works that I can ask questions and get feedback from and ask it to do things all the time without looking at my phone? Absolutely. I would love that. I would love to be able to 
click yeah. find the isn't that what we all want is actually just date that on thursday <laughs> brian and i talked about date night planning as a key thing and to be able to do that without a phone is actually a lot easier so like you think about like glomming chat gpt with siri with like maybe something that can like also record my conversations and take notes etc like all of that is i i think there's a lot of interesting use cases but i think to your point is this one of those things where you have to put all the lead bullets together to turn it into an awesome experience. And I think that's what they're betting on and why they showed so yes. much stuff. Or is it that yeah. there's like one thing that leads? And I'm trying to pull it back to the, trying to remember why I wanted the iPhone the instant I saw it. Like the instant I saw it, I was like, I have to have this, right? And I don't actually know what it was. Like, I think it was just finally someone made a phone that can browse the internet in a regular browser. Yeah. It was like kind of yeah. the key thing for me. But I'm trying to like think through, are they trying to recreate that magic? Because they're Apple people, et cetera. And maybe yeah. that's what it is, is like, hey, it does all this stuff. It's actually kind of cool. The first iPad demo was that way. I remember seeing Steve just like playing with it. And he was like, it's pretty cool. And I was like, it just seems like a big iPhone. And then like everybody bought one, <laughs> you know? So maybe they're counting on that. I don't know. Yeah. I think back to the iPhone and I was like, that was an incredible experience. And it was like the, I think a lot about it is the interface is just the interface. It was actually responsive. Yeah. Like I remember my friend had an iPhone right before me and I was like, the first thing I did is I pinched, you know, it was like, got to the browser. I was like zoom in and like zooming in and out. And it was so fast and responsive. I'd never felt a screen that was that good. And then it seemed like, oh man, he's got this huge advantage. Like he can look up anything and I'm stuck over here with like my Blackberry Pearl basically. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm like, I'm like custom encoding videos to watch them on this thing. This is bad. And I do think that in this case, I feel like you might've just said the reason why this is not going to work, which is like, what do you actually want? You just want an incredible Siri. If Siri was actually delivered on its promise, which is close to what ChatGPT delivers on, but like yeah. actually delivers on it, controlling this stuff for you, actually hits it 100% of the time, you don't have to take your phone out of your pocket and you could just talk to it and you can record it. You get everything. And so I wonder how much of this and these folks like building this company is like, it's a response to the phone specifically. It's guilt. It, but it's also like, you know, you get Siri working incredibly. I think you're going to have a pretty hard time. Like if you audio first interactions, it's going to be really hard for this thing to to really work, I think. So why are you going to buy one? I'm an early adopter. Yeah. I've always been an early adopter. I've been trained to be an early adopter. I mean, you know my dad, Fareed, right? I think. And yeah, he, he was, was my, like... He was my uh, CS152 professor. Oh, I did not know this. <laughs> I did not know. Yeah, it was like the day that Bose Wave Radio came out, which was like huge amount of sound. A tighter, that, that radio showed up at our house. The day DVD players came out, like that, it showed up. You know what I mean? Like we just like always got the new thing. And I think the thing I'm most interested in with this is the interface. Like if this projection on your hand is actually good and it is actually responsive, that I think that could be a big deal. And I don't know that they have all the use cases figured out, but if you can like not have to have a phone and have this inner like an interface that is always available to you, I imagine that there will be uses that come from that that'll be interesting. But I'm looking at more as like I would play with that and see if it really is I feel the same way about like a lot of the VR stuff. Like it's extremely fun to play with and see how it's getting better. And like what the implications of it might be. Um, but I don't look at it. I'm not expecting it to change my entire world. The interface thing is interesting because I, I imagine if it does work to a slight degree, the the natural 
vector where that goes is people are just going to want to make that like a higher fidelity, even more engaging interface. And then at some point, doesn't it just converge with the type of interface you have on your phone and then you end up with all the same issues? I think that's exactly what could happen. Have, have you used, taken like your phone, your iPhone and used it to do FaceTime on, with a TV that has an Apple TV? Yeah, uh, that I've does not have laptop, Apple TV. Not with my TV. No, no, the, the Apple TV launched this thing in the iOS. Oh. You could take your phone, yeah. you put it up under the under the TV, yeah. and then when you do FaceTime, the other person's on yeah. the TV. Yeah, yeah, I've done that with my parents and kids, yeah. Yeah, so that interaction is really interesting if you play around with it, because you're like, man, this, it feels, I mean, it's like a conference room TV at home now, suddenly, mm -hmm. but it's like with friends and family, if you are like in the middle of my kitchen, for example, it zooms in on you and you walk around, it follows mm -hmm. you and stuff. There's that interact. I find it extremely delightful. And I imagine interfaces like this, if suddenly you don't have to have a remote anymore and it's scanning what you're doing and like you're doing things with your hands to control the TV, I could see that as being like mm. something that makes sense. I mean, the iPhone's the best camera we've ever had, right? So mm -hmm. if, if it can work on this humane pin, I imagine it's going to work with your phone. Yeah. At some right. point, someone wants to make it work. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I think the vision of what kind of device are we going to carry around with us in the future that is um, enabled by all of the collective intelligence of these incredible models and AI and all of those things is an interesting question. So like the obvious like incumbent version is the phone. Like the smartphone is the thing. It's going to be encased in all of this magical shit which I think is great. I think the other though, is that like the phone is still built around an app paradigm where you like go to the individual app and do the thing. And I think what's interesting about like the mega Siri or even GPT driven or like even Humane's voice driven is, hey, like apps aren't the right paradigm. It's actually like you can do anything. And then yeah. the UX is contextual to the thing you're trying to do, which I think would actually be very hard for Apple to do because like yeah. it would break their whole ecosystem of apps, et cetera. So like, I do think there is an opportunity. Like I do think like the GPT, the immersion of these like natural language models does allow for like a new way to interact with devices to exist that is way less app centric. Yes. And yes. so what's the right form factor? I think there's an interesting idea on that, but I do yes. think the AirPod or some sort of just audio quietly yeah. to me, but I still want have a device. Like, I don't want to take pictures like this. I want to hold them in my hand and take them. And I think any device without photos in it is not a viable device <laughs> like as the core thing. So I think you're really spot on though about that's the thing that could come is this interface beneath the apps, right? That's like navigating around, mm -hmm. taking pieces of things for you, doing it for you on your behalf. Like that is compelling and interesting. I think the challenge with Humane is like, they have like six major technological risks that they've taken. There's like a, a localized sound thing that only you can hear. That's their solution to not having AirPods. They have the projector onto your hand. They have the computer vision stuff to look at the stuff. They're calling back to the AI. They're translating all the, the touchpad. There's so many risks when I feel like the way, the, the way to probably actually disrupt and get to this is someone has a replacement for Siri that's incredible and you start using it. And then that same company starts building that into other interfaces. Yeah. And it's like, we're going to get you off your phone. Yeah. And like, cause I, and you already trust us as the interface to everything else. Like that to me seems like what could happen. And I think it lines up exactly with what you're saying. It's just, it's scary to have that much technological risk in one go yeah. to try to make it work. I will say, I said this at the top, I'm way more into this than I'm into like strapping the computer to my head all the time. 
orders of magnitude. In terms of like being present in the world. Yeah, being yeah. present in the world. And also as a person who has a lot to say and has great conversations and forgets things, like the idea of a thing where I can be like, remember the thing <laughs> that yeah. just happened is really high value to me. And yeah, like the part where I'm already more addicted feels very dangerous, like not where I want to take my life. So I do like that this is stepping back. I will say like that piece I really like. I just wish they'd sold it harder. Like they almost took it for granted that you agree with them on yeah. that piece. Ben asks, as uh, all this said, are we buying V1 or waiting for V2? I, I'd say I'm buying V1. Chris is buying V1 for ETH. How much is it? It's like 800 bucks, bucks, something like that. I think I'm buying it. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I would like... Well, at the end of this, we'll all be yeah. buying it. Yeah. Well, I'm gonna buy. <laughs> we don't think it's going to work, but we're going to buy it anyways. Yeah. But we're definitely yeah. going to buy it. <laughs> yeah. If it was like 3000 I'd be like, that's, I better know I'm going to use it. Well, there's a future conversation about Vision Pro then. I will personally never buy a Vision Pro. I think it's rad. I kind of really want one. Knowing how addicted I am to my phone, the idea of a thing that's even more engaging that is strapped to my face and fully detached from all the other humans around me is really terrifying. And I know you're supposed to be able to see them, but like, give me a break. I have kids. I can't have a computer strapped to my face. That's my personal view. I am very intrigued by the Vision Pro, actually for a similar reason that we were talking about with Humane, which is like that interface. You know, how compelling is that interface? How how much does it deliver? I've used a lot of the VR devices. We actually at one point gave everyone at Wistia like a Quest 2 when we were fully remote in COVID because we were like, we want to do things together that are fun, that are like internet first. And so we think this could be a way to do that. So we got everyone a Quest 2. And we were doing like mini golf tournaments and all this stuff. And it was like one of the first times that it actually felt like you had presence with people and could hang out with them. But I don't use it that much now. I very rarely use it. If it delivers and it's like crystal clear, unbelievable quality, I get why they're marketing this like travel use case for it of like, oh, you're on a plane. Do you want to feel like you're in an actual movie theater? If it delivers on that, I think I, people already wear really weird stuff on planes. So... I think that I think that might be the killer okay. use case. On an airplane, on a non-family flight, I feel like yeah. I I can totally imagine this. I'm already that, it's, looking it's, at a yeah. phone that's eight inches from exactly. my face in front of me yeah. on a little. Why not go all the way and have it be like you're in an IMAX, and then you know you're at some business thing at like dinner or whatever, and you come back and you want to watch something, and you're like in your home theater. I think that's going to be like maybe the first killer use case. We have TVs, but they're not in like obvious places, and I end up watching a lot of shows on on a laptop. But again, alone, me and my wife would never lay in bed with both of us with Vision Pros on watching a movie <laughs> together. That would be weird. That's what I think is like a little, you know, we have a loneliness epidemic. Will it make it worse because you're going to be more alone or is it going to make it better because somehow you're going to be more connected to people virtually? I, I don't know. I think jur the, the jury is out on that one. All right. Show Rome to us. I'm actually quite fascinated. In okay. This yeah. Let's talk about yeah. presence. Yeah. And, you know, interactive. Yes. So. Yeah. So let me, I, I want to show you guys this product we've been using at Wistia called Rome. It's a virtual HQ. Interesting thing uh, about this product is like, you can't really see much about it on their website and see it in their very early stage startup. To actually see it, you have to do like a founder's tour. And the founders will take you into the Rome that they use for their company and they'll like walk you around it. So I'll show you what this looks like. This is our Rome HQ. I'm up in the corner right now. I have a little do not disturb thing on. So what this means is like, I'm in my own office, but if someone else is in their offices as Carly, I can click here and it'll knock. 
on her door. She'll hear like an audio tone that's like, hey, Chris is knocking. Are you free to chat? And then if she accepts it, we're just, we're not in a video chat. We're just like in an audio mm -hmm. chat. And so everyone has their own office. You can decide how it's set up. You can have a little, you have a little shelf. So this is my shelf. Like if you come into my office, you can see this at the bottom and it's like some of my favorite books, Masters of Doom. I don't know if you guys have read this. Not. Really yeah. great book. Oh God, it's, it's so good. Drive, some other stuff. Like, you know, conversation starters, the types of stuff that you would have if you were actually in someone's real office. Mm. And then you have conference rooms and you can see there's people in these conference rooms right now. And if their bubbles are lighting up, those are the people who are actually talking. It's like Matt's in this <laughs> room talking. It's kind of like you're in an in-person office and you could see people through the windows of a conference room mm -hmm. and see them in there. And the conference rooms have the same type of thing where you can say like, it's open to anyone or you need to knock to come in or you cannot disturb. And then we have floors that have people across the company today, different places. So you can go find people, chat with them. And you know, there's like a theater. And if I go into the theater, there's like rows of seats on the bottom and but like all hands and stuff. Yeah. So you can do like an all hands in here. And so like in the theater, I'm in this front row here. Mm -hmm. And if there's other people sitting with me, you can like have like an audio chat with them during the presentation. You can sign you can like bar, whisper basically. Yeah. yeah. And then you can also go backstage. I can go on stage. And if people were watching this, they would see, you could see someone navigating around. Does this make sense? Yeah. So you see someone's little bubble. People can, you can see where people are. And the thing that's been really interesting about this is we wanted to try it as a way to see like, could we get more conversations happening that are not just like standing meetings that are more like run-in type conversations? Mm -hmm. Could we have more of those conversations happening? What would the friction be like? Would people really adopt it? And so in the summer, in August, I think we did a test and we asked the company to say, hey, instead of using Zoom this month, we want you to try this room thing and do your meetings in here and see what happens. And like, I mean, I can share some of the results with you of what that test looked like. But yeah, because that's my biggest question here is like, what is the actual customer problem this thing solves? Because a bunch of these emerged through COVID and I tried a bunch and none of them like really stuck. And then so it felt like it was going to take just like the right UI or the right feature to really get this thing right. Yeah. So I, the, the interesting thing about this is basically what we're saying is audio conversations by default, you can see where people are and have a sense of presence in the, in the sense of like, you know, if someone was in person and the two of you guys were sitting together at a pot of desks chatting, pretty openly, I would feel comfortable like joining that conversation maybe. But if you were in whispered tones, like I wouldn't, or if you had headphones on, I probably definitely wouldn't. Right. So it's like these different levels of understanding I would say that that's what they're trying to do in here. So the data was in the month that we switched, we went from about 3000 meetings across the company to 4,900. So you'd think that's bad, but what actually happened <laughs> is we spent 30% less time in meetings. Oh, interesting. Hmm. And the average time per meeting dropped a ton. So across all meetings, the average time per meeting was, or the median rather, was six minutes. Hmm. And one-on-ones, the average, the median rather, was 2.7 minutes. And three plus participants was about 20 minutes. But they were all lower than our average meeting time in Zoom. Right. And so what happened is like, you know, people have a lot of these standing one-on-one -on -one meetings in, in Zoom. And they're like, oh, we're going to have, we're, I'm going to wait to talk to you until I have this meeting because I know I'm talking to Brian yeah. on Thursday. 
And then you get in there and maybe you only have five minutes of norm, actual urgent content, but you feel bad. You've, or if like, I don't know if people will reach out to me. I want to talk to you about something, Chris. I'm like, okay, it gets, if it's scheduled, it's like three weeks out. And then we get to it and it's like, it was like a one minute conversation mm -hmm. and they can't just leave it like that. It looks weird. And so what's been happening for us is like, the more we've used it, we've had the amount of time in meetings drop, number of connections going up. We also measure how connected people feel across the organization. And 40% of the companies said they felt much more connected to their team after this month than before. Wow. Fascinating. So for us, it's, it's really worked out. And then the last thing I want to say that's really interesting is Slack has a lot of these features in it. And we use Slack. Yeah. Right. Slack has audio huddles. Slack has status. You can change your status, all this stuff. And there was a small fraction of the company that was using that a fair yeah. amount before switching. And the thing that so shocked me about this was something about this interface being the default grid layout, seeing the team and understanding their presence changed people's behaviors enough that ultimately we've spent less time in meetings and people feel more connected to it. Huh. So I have like a product reaction to this. It's actually like yeah. a growth reaction to this. When you first said, you can't even sign up for this. You got to go on a tour yeah. and like yeah. walk through their space with it. I was yeah. like, that's okay. Superhuman thing. Felt a little like cargo culty, but I get it. And the reason I get it is because I think the reason this worked for you is that you told everyone at the company to try it and pro try it all at Correct. once. And there's yes. no bottoms up play to this. It's either everyone's that using is... it or no one's using yeah. it. And so the only is, way to get everyone yes. to use it is to convince the CEO to use it now, today. And so this like sales assisted demo growth model might be the only way to make this thing work. Cause a lot of the bottoms up stuff I've tried, it just dies on the vine. It's like, oh, three people are using it, but not the rest. Guess what? You know what everybody else is on? Zoom and Google Calendar. So it's just gonna win. You have to force the adoption moment. Super interesting. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think there was a there was a conversation internally. It was like, should we go all in on this or not? And it was like, well, we're, we're experimenting on lots of stuff left and right. We want our customers to be able to take risks too. So like, let's just try it. And like, we'll be really open and we'll survey everybody and we'll see what happens. But we felt that we had to get everybody to try it to exactly your point. And I do think that they have another interesting thing they're doing. The founder of this was also the founder of Yext. And he's constantly posting and talking about is it. like building very much the public and they've talked about i think in december they're going to open it up so anyone can just self-register so that'll probably be the big question for them is like does that really work or not mm. but it is cool because like i'll have a meeting end and someone will just like half a second after the person grabs you that's what used to feel like and you're like walking out of the meeting room meetings. yeah and somebody's yeah. Yeah. you know just grabs yeah. you to the side can i talk to you for a second yeah. they also have like a guest thing now which i haven't played with yet that supposedly like i think i can give you both guest passes to wistia and you can just come and like knock on my door if you want to hmm. which is kind of interesting because actually the last thing i'll say about this it's basically an internal phone directory <laughs> Yeah. Right. It's kind of what yeah. it is. It's like audio calls by default for everybody, but every single person with you doesn't have everyone else's cell phone. That would be weird. We don't do that. Like we don't have a phone on our desk. So there is part of me that I'm like, how much of this is like, it's a new interface to a thing that's existed for right. a long time. It just hasn't existed in remote companies in this way. And then this is like close enough. Yeah. And but I imagine you're a salespeople and you're still on zoom, right? You, you haven't you haven't, so it is an added we've product. We've decreased our okay. amount. We've we've decreased our, our usage of Zoom. Yes, but people who are doing external meetings are still using Zoom if they're using for like sales. Yeah, because I imagine that's going to be the other point of friction of adoption here is that I think for 
quite a few people, this is going to be an added product versus a replacement product. And so I think in budget sensitive times, especially, that's going to be a hard thing for folks to justify. How much are you all paying for yeah. it? It's like $8 a user a month, okay. I think. Yeah, so okay. yeah, 80 bucks a um, And it, it has, so they have like chat built into it, which I didn't show you, which is like designed to be a competitor yeah. to Slack. And they have whiteboards that can be persistent in rooms <laughs> that it's designed to be like yeah. competitive to Miro. Yeah. So a lot of the stuff we're talking about like shows up in this thing. Yeah. And I think if you were a very early stage startup, you might be able to benefit from because you haven't established all the patterns of right. communication yeah. yet. It might be a lot easier to do it. Yeah. How remote is Wistia, Chris? We're we're very remote now. I mean, pre-COVID, we were very in person, 90% in person. You are. And now maybe 35% of the office the company could drive to the office for the day, something like that. But people are all over the country now. Okay. I still think about like what is the nuance that made this work for you compared to other products i can't remember the names of all the products but i saw one and it was more like gather town yeah, gather town which is like the pixel art pixel art like game yeah. game type yeah. of thing i also saw one where it was very similar except it required you to have a dedicated ipad on your desk and so as a result like you could actually just sit there and work and have people know that you're just like sitting there and working so it kind of created more of a feeling yeah. of you're actually in a physical space with somebody as well but but yeah all these things seem to have stalled out super quickly after the novelty effect wore off yeah i've seen some other startups that are working on a bottoms up audio first kind of like persistent audio chat mm -hmm. thing that could potentially work for me it's just the interface it's just like there's something about default you're in your office you're working you open room you close it you're not in there but it is confusing in the sense that you have this and you have slack you have zoom and right now we're in riverside <laughs> i think that is the part that is the risky part if we were to leave it it would probably be because of that right it would be because slack i mean slack could make a, a world yeah. slack slack could make a view of the world that looked like this totally. yes and it would be hard to compete with. Totally, yeah. The reason Zoom has trouble with this, and I've talked about this a lot, so people who listen to the pod a lot will sound like I'm repeating myself, is that Zoom's biggest like problem is they don't have like a home or a sense of presence that exists when the meeting isn't alive, right? Like they've yeah. tried and tried and tried and tried and tried, but they've just like never landed. Like I am online and you can talk to me. And that's why they're trying all this other stuff. But at the end of the day, the presence is owned by the calendar and by G Suite or by Outlook. And Zoom is just a channel that's open during the meeting. And so I think what's interesting is, is like if your whole company is on this, it is an awesome place to like add new stuff like whiteboards and interactions and here's our docs and here's this. And Slack has that too. But ultimately, like you just saw the reaction of the redesign, which is like, let's move some pixels around in Slack and people like freak <laughs> out is like, how would you ever, you could never upend Slack channels to be like totally around this new paradigm. It's just like, they have a hard enough time getting like people to use Canvas and like workflow automations and those kinds of things. So I do think there's an opportunity for a different one, but they probably end up head on with each other if it's, if it's successful. I love the stat you gave about there's more meetings, but they're shorter. The downside of remote work in Zoom is that everything became a calendar invite and calendar invites yes. default to 30 minutes. And now it's this like Tetris game of fitting all the things. And then you feel really busy and your life kind of sucks and you don't have heads down time. 
Whereas when I'm in the office, we only had like eight conference rooms at Instacart when we were like 250 people. And it like kind of works because you don't actually need a conference room all that often. You like mostly walk over to someone's desk and like yap about yeah. stuff, right? And that's lost now. It's like just everything is fragmented, caught up in, in, in Zoom. So anything that allows five-minute conversations to be five-minute conversations takes away 45-minute conversations that don't need to exist. And I do think that's cool. I do think these tools all die because of go-to-market and maybe this is the approach that wins. No bottoms up, get everybody on it. Like there's the only way. I, I do think you're right. I think it, there's something about remote that is like, on the one hand, amazing. It's like, all right, we're gonna have this meeting. Here's the agenda. Here's the pre-reads, get ready, blah, blah, blah. It adds this formal part to it. And then you're in there and you feel like you're Jeff Bezos and you're just like making calls and you're doing <laughs> stuff. And like, but the downside is there's like so much that you have to do to have a meeting, yeah. right? It's yeah. like the lift is so heavy. And so if you're trying to move really quickly, you're trying to respond to fast information, like you'd have no problem in person. You just, hey, I can see you're, what you're doing isn't that important. Let's all get together to solve this problem. And it's remote feels like a big deal. It's hard to know which which meetings you can schedule over and which ones you can't. And I think like the very, the thing I can tell you is not even specifically about Rome. It's just this idea of trying to have faster, less formal stuff actually to for how to communicate actually matters. It adds up. And I do think like in my perfect world, it probably would all just be just my phone. There would be like a, a something built into it that's even easier and even more persistent for me to like quickly grab people and chat. But I just think that that, that seeps in as you get bigger. And it's, it's also the same thing we we're just talking about with an existing company like Slack having like your point of like, they couldn't do this is so interesting because it's like they have the status updates. They're sitting there. Like you can automate some of that. Like- Oh, would you double thumbs up? Are we getting the reactions going? I, I don't, whoa, what just happened? <laughs> that's his cam. That's got to be his camera, right? No, it's a new. It's a new OS, new Mac OS. Oh, all the oh really? <laughs> that was yeah, crazy. Like, wait, yeah. wait. Oh, oh, I must not be updated then. Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> Look. Apparently oh not. gosh. Oh, it's getting bad out there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, anyways, yeah, that that is interesting. I mean, we've tried to solve this a number of ways at Reforge, and none of them have worked. We have moved more towards what you're talking about. We use a lot of huddles on Slack much more often. We schedule less meetings. We encourage a lot more. Just, you know, click the huddle button, let people pop in and out as they want. We've moved much more to visuals, like all of those types of things. But it still seems like it's missing something. So it's interesting to see this. And by the way, I did. I love that you measured it. You had like the mind to measure these, these yeah. things before, before and after. Which I don't know if I would have actually thought about that. How did you measure this? This seems like really hard data to get. I mean, there's a bunch of Zoom data you can pull out. Okay. That's like just who's having meetings, how long are they, and stuff like that. Rome has some of those data we were able to get because they, they want to make this case. I mean, yeah. I think they their mascot just changed into like. Ocho, like an eight, because their whole thing is like the average meeting time is like eight minutes or something oh, okay. on the platform. Cool. And then we just did, you know, like surveys with the team about, you know, we do engagement surveys a couple of times a year. We know that pre being remote, our connectedness, like how people connected people feel to other teammates was unbelievably high, like from an industry perspective. And then it dropped to like an unbelievable yeah. low, which I think was like, which is even we worse for us because we were so connected that yeah. then it was, yeah. And then it's been, we've been getting it back up to be much higher. And this is, so it's made sense to, to look at that. 
Yeah, I guess that's how. Yeah. All right, Chris, thank you so much for doing this. Have a great holiday. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. This was fun. Good to see you. Great conversation. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. That's it for another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. Thank you once again to Chris Savage for joining us today. Check out unsolicitedfeedback.co. Sign up for the email list. Email subscribers get uh, access to new episode notifications, as well as a bunch of exclusive goodies only for subscribers, such as clips, transcripts, as well as summaries along the way. Once again, sign up at unsolicitedfeedback.co. We'll see you on the next episode.